We can all agree, easy sentence, AI systems shouldn't be biased, they shouldn't discriminate. What does that look like in practice? This is the year where people are actually going to have to answer those questions in detail. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, if 2023 was the year we all got familiar with generative AI, is 2024 the year when governments will act on the governance of this powerful technology? We have to move into the action phase, I think will be a key thing to watch in 2024. We hear from the head of global affairs at ChatGPT's OpenAI. We want a global regime that includes every country that thinks about catastrophic risk. Sam often talks about it as the IAEA model for AI. So what are global leaders saying to Sam Altman? Every world leader wants to understand how to harness this technology for the benefit of their country while putting in place guardrails. And people are on different ends of the spectrum about which one they prioritize. AI has an almost limitless number of applications. So how can those guardrails work across such a broad spectrum of activities? What are the very specific guardrails? rails a model should have to prevent it, inflicting certain specific harms. I think you should forbid any person from ever saying something about we need to do this for AI without specifying what use cases they're talking about. We have to protect the little guy. There has to be new ideas, there has to be a new generation of thinkers building and contributing. That needs to be a top priority for the regulator. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit weft.ch slash podcast where you also find our sister programs Meet the Leader and Agenda Dialogues. I'm Robin Palmer at the World Economic Forum and with views from Davos on how AI can and should be governed. This is an incredibly challenging moment for the world. This is Radio Davos. At the World Economic Forum's annual meeting last month, artificial intelligence was very much the issue of the day. I managed to grab several interviews with people shaping the future of AI. Later in the show, Anna Makanju, Vice President of Global Affairs at OpenAI, the company that brought us ChatGPT. Including her in their top 100 people in AI, Time magazine said... There's a good chance that whatever AI regulations emerge across the world in the next few years, Anna Makanju will have left her fingerprints on them. We'll also hear from a young Silicon Valley CEO, Aidan Gomez of Cohere, to get an insider's view of the conversations among the tech companies about regulation. First, I speak to Alexandra Reeve Givens, CEO of the Centre for Democracy and Technology, a non-profit organisation based in Washington and Brussels that advocates, as they put it, to protect civil rights and civil liberties in the digital age. I asked the head of the Centre for Democracy and Technology how important was the potential impact of technology on democracy? Deeply important. We can think about many different ways that AI is impacting democracy. One of the themes we're hearing a lot about this week at Davos is mis- and disinformation, deep fakes and the impact on elections. So that's one big piece of this. But also we have to think about economic inequality and the role that that plays in a democracy and the survival of democracy in the long term. For AI, that raises questions not only of job displacement, which is one of the themes we're hearing about, but also how decisions are made about people, who gets access to a loan, who's chosen for a job, whether someone gets approved for public benefits or not. AI is seeping into all of those systems and has for the past several years in ways that policymakers and companies alike really have to pay attention to. Where do you feel things are going in terms of policymaking and governance, are there tribal lines and kind of, is it seen as a binary thing? Or are we going to get through these conversations some kind of consensus that will get us that, that governance and those guardrails is the cliche word people use, that we need that will work for everyone? So it's my job to be an optimist uh, as, a, as a public interest advocate. But one of the things that I'm truly optimistic about is it feels like we're in a moment where the lines have not yet been drawn between one faction or the other. This is one of the refreshing areas of policy dialogue where companies, governments, and civil society alike are calling for action. 
and truly, I think, are engaged in good faith discussion about what that action looks like. Now, of course, we have to go from high-level discussion to actual rubber meets the road, laws being written, policies being adopted, new designs being deployed by companies. So we have to move into the action phase, and that's just starting to happen now, and I think will be a key thing to watch in 2024. But the good news is it doesn't feel tribalistic just yet. I think the real question is what steps should we be taking and how do we get there quickly? That's interesting because I, I had an impression, you know, coming very much from the outside to look at this issue, that there were those kind of lines that you have very kind of libertarian, you know, Silicon Valley types who saying, just leave us alone. We're the smart guys. We can deal with this. And you've got a lot of people who are very scared about AI and are saying, shut it down. We even had a call this time last year for a six-month moratorium. That, that, yeah. that seemed a, a little bit polarized back then. Yeah, so sure, there's a libertarian manifesto that made the, round, made the rounds, but I don't think that's reflective of where most corporate leaders are, particularly the ones that take governance seriously and their social responsibility seriously which I like to think is still the majority, particularly of, of mainstream companies. So there, I think the real question is, how do we go from them saying we believe in responsible AI to actually saying, great, how do you operationalize that in practice? Mm. And how do we make sure that your definition of responsible AI isn't just something that escapes human control many years down the line, but actually is respecting people's rights and freedoms and economic opportunity now? And, and that's the real discussion is how do we get concrete in those commitments? Is that one of the dividing lines in itself, then, this idea of short-term and long-term? The long-term warriors who think we're going to get the killer robots or whatever, these, these super beings who are smarter than us, that there's a risk of ignoring the short-term. Yeah, so that was a big divide in 2023, was about whether or not we focus on long-term risks or short-term risks. I would like to think we've reached the maturity model now of people realizing we can and must do both at once, and that actually some of the interventions are exactly the same. So if you worry about long-term risks of AI either escaping human control or being used for bionuclear terrorism, some of the same mechanisms, which are transparency, accountability mechanisms, who is designing those products and who are they consulting with as they do it, are actually the same types of interventions that those of us who think about near-term human rights harms are focused on as well. And so I hope we're seeing a little bit more of a convergence and less of a dichotomy in the field. And instead of it being, oh, do you care about X risk or do you care about current risk? It's actually, well, what are the interventions that are going to help address those harms and how do we start making progress on those? Okay, well, let's talk about those interventions then. How do you go about intervening in technologies like this that's so widespread and it's changing so rapidly all the time? I mean, maybe we could start with the point you raised about the misinformation and disinformation, which indeed came at the very top of the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report in the short-term risk the next one to two years. Misinformation, disinformation, I don't, I don't know where it appeared on previous years. That, for example, that's a tangible, or is it? I don't know. It's a risk. <laughs> it's a current risk. <laughs> yeah. um, how would you go about an intervention in that in kind of a policy-making way? Well, it's a good example to focus on because it illustrates that there's going to be no one silver bullet and it's not one actor, right? So there's a role for legislation, but also... In the realm of mis and disinformation, you run up on free speech pretty quickly. You can't just ban deep fakes or manipulated images. That becomes very, very hard when you think about the expressive purposes why people might want to you know, Photoshop an image, for example. And so instead, what we have to think about is this hybrid solution. So let's look at individual use cases. When a deep fake is being used to extort somebody, to defame somebody, to spread non-consensual sexual imagery about somebody, to manipulate an election. Let's make sure there are legal interventions at that point that directly address that harm and hold that person responsible. 
But then also let's move up the chain. So for general purpose AI system, where obviously there are going to be good uses as well as harmful uses, what are the interventions that they can put in to try and regulate what those downstream bad uses might be? So what are their usage policies? What are their content policies? What triggers a red flag when somebody is using their system for them to then interrogate what that use is and maybe cancel that person's subscription or their access? Those are the types of questions we can be asking at the companies higher up in the stack so that technology is still widely available to people, but we are putting guardrails on that help establish uh, more responsible uses. Does some of that though rely on the goodwill of the company? Because we've had social media for you know, a couple of decades developing over time. And they've had, I think initially, again, it was, a, it was a wild west and there was a libertarian thing of we're just a platform and people can, you know, have this open town square. And then the big social media companies have approached moderation of, of that content in different ways, which is such a live issue now, isn't it? And it mm -hmm. was through the pandemic, you know, and you've got um, obviously Elon Musk's um, X which he's made more libertarian, you know, and there are legitimate arguments in favor of that. But in the framework that we have at the moment, there seems to be a lot of reliance on that goodwill and you're hoping that the companies will put that in place. And this is a field where you could have maverick companies or just individuals producing mass scale disinformation. And that's really hard to stop or to, to guard against, isn't it? It is. You can create mechanisms that increase company accountability, though. And I think transparency and risk management frameworks is one of the clear places to start. Again, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve everything. But when we're thinking about low-hanging fruit, so what are their content policies? What are their usage policies? How are they developing them? Um, how are they enforcing them? Are they actually enforcing them with consistency and looking at whether or not somebody is using their system for mass deception campaigns, for example, if that becomes more common down the road? There's some low-hanging fruit around what kind of mechanisms of accountability look like that would allow governments to steer clear of legislating, you know, your tool may produce this information, it may not produce that information. Governments get very worried about that for, for real reasons around free expression, but still establish these norms for what responsible processes look like that allow for better governance uh, to ultimately win the day. Now, you're immersed in the, in the Washington policy, I don't want to... I was about to say bubble, but that sounds insulting. But <laughs> in that very active um, policy-making city, which obviously decisions made there have reverberations around the world. But to what extent is the governance of AI genuinely an international thing? Because you've had the EU producing legislation on this, and you've had China legislating about it, and you've had talks here at the World Economic Forum, but also at the United Nations and elsewhere, very much on a, on a global scale, where do you think, is it, is it going to be country by country putting these things into place? Is it important that it's cross-border? And how do you see that happening? Yeah, so again, we're going to need an all of the above strategy. So my organization, CDT, is based in Washington and also in Brussels. And those are two places where uh, regional or national legislation is going to be hugely important. That's where you can get specific on use cases. You can fold things into existing laws. So for example, if an AI system is being used to discriminate in the course of hiring somebody, national employment laws should apply the exact same way that if a biased person in HR was you know, vetting somebody with an unfair standard. So there's this essential role for that type of specific geographically bound integration with existing law. But also we need international cooperation and we need it for a couple of different reasons. 
One is that these companies, of course, transcend borders. The technology transcends borders. Um, and also a meaningful enforcement regime is going to be one where there's harmonization so that we can begin to say what good looks like and have some of the same language, at least, even if on a normative scale, we land in slightly different places. So that's where vehicles like the US-EU Trade and Technology Council, uh, even you know, other forums have, that have been doing a lot of work on standardization. So what is the language that we use? What are the metrics for testing and evaluating an AI system? What are the rubrics that we use? Um, that can be incredibly productive at this early stage so that we get better, clearer benchmarking. And it's easier for the companies to kind of have a more uniform approach that they then can toggle to comply with local and national laws. Do we need a, a global treaty or something? You think about climate change or you think about the aviation industry, which has IATA or the nuclear energy industry, which has certain global regulations. Can that really apply to AI? I think you should forbid any person from ever saying something about we need to do this for AI without specifying what use cases they're talking about. Because an international treaty might be hugely important when we think about AI and some of the long-term safety risks, when we think about uh, AI and its use for autonomous weapons, for example. There are places where international coordination is going to be essential to make sure that rights and safety are protected. Then again, there are those more local and applied issues where really we're talking about enforcement of existing you know, civil rights standards, equality standards that do make sense more on the local or national level. And the international work to be done there is more about harmonization, threat detection, information sharing, and less about one binding global norm. So again, we have to be specific on these use cases and then toggle our different modes of intervention appropriately to respond to each one. Democracy and technology, you are working in a democracy or in several democracies, as you're also in the European Union. Does AI pose a risk of enabling authoritarian governments to become more authoritarian? And is there anything that can be done about that? Oh my goodness, without question. There are real risks about how AI is going to exacerbate the, the power of authoritarian regimes and make it even harder uh, to protect people's individual rights. We can look at this from a surveillance state purpose. So facial recognition is AI. AI is what powers that, is what makes it more coordinated. We're seeing governments now that uh, integrate the provision of public benefits and public services uh, through an AI system. So, for example, there were famous examples uh, in Iran where they were using face recognition to enforce the hijab laws. And at one point, a minister even said, if you were in violation of that, we might dock your benefits through an integrated system. So those are the types of concerns that one can easily imagine. And then, of course, there are concerns around you know, access to truth and information. So even you know, what are the norms through which a generative AI system's content policies are being written when OpenAI moves into a country with uh, a questionable human rights standards or different approaches to what information can and cannot be surfaced? So we have to have a real conversation around this. One of the areas that I'm hoping we see progress on in 2024 is much more public accountability for how the AI companies that are based in global democracies uh, are thinking about the human rights consequences when they move into and enter deals with countries that do not have strong human rights records. Um, there are the human rights guiding principles on this, the UN guiding principles on this. There are mechanisms through which these companies must be doing human rights impact assessments, should be talking about that publicly, should be doing it with external accountability and civil society oversight. And so far that conversation has been completely lacking. When people think about you know, the governance of AI, they often throw up their hands and say, these are these massive big picture questions. There are really tangible things we could be doing right now 
to say, what is the human rights impact analysis that you're doing and how do we hold you accountable to that when you enter into business with a new regime? And that's one of the areas, just as an example, where we could be marking progress right away. You're meeting companies here in Davos. Do you think they're becoming aware of that and taking it seriously? Yeah, because this isn't new, right? There have been frameworks already for tech companies, for cloud service providers to decide whether or not to do business with a particular regime. Now, you know, have we fixed that and is it always done completely right? No, but at least there are frameworks and there's a language that we use around what those expectations are. So again, we're at the maturity phase where the AI companies can't just say, oh, we're new, we're still figuring this out anymore. They are at a level of sophistication. They're on the global stage. They're at places like Davos. They have to be taking that responsibility seriously too. And I think they understand it. It's just a question of making sure that this is as much of a priority as the next fundraising round or the next innovation you know, series of releases are going to be. I was following a session earlier today about AI and AI governance. Everyone seemed to be repeating this idea that when governments don't understand something, the knee-jerk response is to ban it or restrict it in some way that, that's not very clever way of doing things. And that governments still need to learn what AI is before they can really do proper governance. Do you think we're at that stage yet or have we moved beyond that? I find that a bit of a false argument, to be honest. It's tempting, of course, for technologists, and I say that both for the companies and for public interest organizations like mine, to say, oh, government is slow, government doesn't understand. Um, that's an easy excuse to say, let's spend the next two years educating policymakers on this rather than having them act on it. So of course, policymakers have to be educated, but let's give them the credit where credit is due, that many of them are ramping up very quickly they know who to call. They know who to consult when they're writing a piece of legislation or writing a policy. We cannot just say, let's take a breath and, and educate. We have to say, let's have informed policymaking action, but they can walk and chew gum at the same time. What do you think are the next steps this year in 2024? Are there going to be some things that everyone should be looking out for if you're a user or a maker of AI? 2024 is a big year to move from high-level principles into action. So the EU AI Act, they have their agreement. They're going to be starting to really work out the details of what implementation looks like. And of course, that's where the rubber hits the road. And then in the US, you have not only conversations around legislating, but really where the action is focused is implementation of President Biden's AI executive order, which is agencies across the government, across sectors, all issuing detailed guidance about what responsible use of AI looks like in their sectors um, and grappling with hard questions around government's own use of AI too. All of those things require policymakers and the companies that are going to be impacted to get really specific on what good looks like. Just to give an example, we can all agree, easy sentence, AI systems shouldn't be biased, they shouldn't discriminate. What does that look like in practice? What are you testing for? How are you doing that testing? And what happens to you if you don't meet the threshold of that test? This is the year where people are actually going to have to answer those questions in detail. Uh, and I hope that means that it's a year of progress because it's going to be in hashing through those details that we really figure out what is measurable, what is fixable, and what's the right accountability regime to make sure that people are taking that responsibility seriously. You started this conversation by saying you're an optimist. And I think you're talking on the kind of governance side of things and being able to control AI rather than having it control us. But I wonder if you're also optimistic on the promise of AI as well. Are there things you think AI can do that, that excite you, that make you think, actually, at least here, this is definitely going to be good for us? Without question. And I actually think it's, it's one of the things I worry about is this false binary, that if you're a critique of the risks of AI, it suddenly means that you're a downer on the technology. And I am absolutely not. I think it's going to have the huge power to transform the way that we work, the way that we communicate, 
Um, you think about the medical advances uh, and so many other ways in which it really is going to just drive human innovation forward. I think the watchword for me is what's responsible rights respecting innovation. And to me, there's this massive opportunity for us to try and get that right, to say we're at this cusp, we're at this threshold where, again, the companies are saying the right things about wanting this innovation to be harnessed uh, and used in a productive and responsible way. We just have to fill in the details of what that responsible governance looks like. And that really is a, a, is a secret to success, to showing, of course, we can move forward with innovation, but we can do in a way that lifts up everybody and respects and protects everybody as we do so. Alexandra Reeve Givens, CEO of the Centre for Democracy and Technology, speaking to me in Davos, where I also met our next guest, Aidan Gomez, founder and CEO of the AI company Cohere. What does the head of a Silicon Valley company think about the governance of AI? I think that governance is needed. Um, we definitely need better policy and regulation. I think the way that we get there is incredibly important. Um, it's tough to regulate a horizontal technology like language. Language